Well, good evening, everybody. Welcome back. Welcome back. So, um, this sounds pretty fancy, huh? I want you to know I had nothing to do with any of it. This is all Mike and John, okay? So, I just, I finished Romans like eight weeks ago, and these guys are like, hey, can we meet and talk about the class? I'm like, yeah. And they're like, this is what we're doing, and they do it and they run with it. And uh, my niece called from South Carolina and said, I'm trying to share your stuff with my friends, but they don't sit in front of YouTube for an hour and watch stuff. They're all into podcasts. So I said that to John. He called me back an hour later. He goes, okay, you're on Spotify and, and, and something else now. And I was like, I don't even know what that means, but okay. <laughs> and, um, and, and they just run with this stuff and they make it all better. It's, it's really incredible. So uh, yeah, and uh, John has been... How many of you have been to my apologetics class before? You're going to go, hey, those aren't your slides. They are. It says that John made them pretty. Okay? John spent many, many weeks taking every one of over 300 PowerPoint slides and putting pictures to them. If I quote an author, he finds the picture of that author and put it on there. And I'm like, that's what that guy looks like. I mean, I read his books and everything. I never knew what he looked like. And then John puts his picture up there. So it's really been a lot of a hard work from these guys. Um, there is a lot of content, and um, and I took some suggestions. You know, people say you know sometimes more than talking science and stuff at work, we're more talking to a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon. You know, can you help us with that? And uh, so we're going to dedicate some of the last couple classes to how to speak to people from different faiths and so forth, and uh, try to equip you guys to. Uh, really change the world if you're up for it, All right? Okay. All right. How about those folders? My goodness. Yeah. I mean, I want one for heaven's sake. And uh, all right. So very, very good. And and uh, okay. I don't know what else to say. I'm just overwhelmed by Mike and John. They they really uh, do a lot uh, for this. So um, let's open in a word of prayer, and we'll get our 11 weeks on here, huh? All right. So just an observation. We probably finish classes at about 50% of the people that we start with. So I just wonder who amongst you are going to make it. I just wonder. If you think I'm trying to make you feel guilty, please understand that I am. All right. Okay. You should make sure you're trying to learn this as best as you can. Okay. Let's pray together. So Father, in Jesus' name, we come to you and... Uh, and Lord, we study, we pray, uh, we adore you, Lord. We, we love our, our pastors that give us the word. Lord, everything's about you, and yet we still haven't caught even the glimpse of your back like Moses did yet. You're so much more than all of this. So may our hearts, Lord, bow to you in reverence as we begin this journey of realizing that you left your fingerprints all over this creation for us to find you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would just guide us along this path these 11 weeks, that you would ensure that you receive glory and honor, Lord, from all of us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, <clears throat> I'm beginning of what I call the gospel of Genesis, because when I mention Genesis, you probably think of creation and things like that, and well, you should, um, but God is designing and creating in ways that are telling stories 
far more than just the creation story. So, as we look at, I want to start in Psalm 19, actually, to set the tone for our Genesis study tonight. And in Psalm 19, very familiar passage, I want to unpack it a little bit for us tonight. There, David writes, the heavens declare the glory of God. Now, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Very, very, very often, I would say one of the more common questions I get asked is, if we're all there is in this universe, why is space so big? It sure seems like a lot of waste, a lot of wasted space. And my answer to them always is this. Those heavens are declaring the glory of God. If we were any smaller, that would be our statement on God. That's what it would declare, that he's small. But if we can't even get our telescopes around it, and, it's, and there's planets and stars out there that are thousands and thousands of times bigger than our planet, it's telling us something. It's telling us our maker is huge and powerful and wonderful. And as we gaze into the night sky and just catch the tiniest of glimpses of what's going on out there, and we marvel at its beauty, imagine if we had the capacity to grasp all of its beauty, what it would be telling us. So <clears throat> Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech. It is a daily testimony to us, isn't it? It testified yesterday, it testified today, it will testify again tomorrow. And night unto night reveals knowledge. There's knowledge behind this. It's a massive problem for the atheist to explain the complexity of life that we see with no intelligence involved. It's a huge problem. This says night unto night, knowledge is being revealed through creation. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Isn't that true? It's not like people that just speak Spanish go, oh, I don't understand what's going on out there, right? It speaks to across all of humankind. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their word to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. It's talking about the trajectory of the sun from sunrise to sunset across our sky. Its rising is from one end of heaven, and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. And I like to sometimes think about the heat of the sun, because sometimes you can't help it down here, right? And it's 93 million miles away, hundreds of times bigger than the earth, 93 million miles away. And if I remember this number correctly, it's, it's like a billion atomic bombs going off every second. That's how much energy is being released every second. Billion atomic bombs, billion, another billion, another billion, another billion. And God puts it in the perfect spot to ripen your tomatoes. Isn't that remarkable? Absolutely remarkable what's going on with all of that. So, St. Augustine said this. He said, ask the loveliness of the earth. Ask the loveliness of the sea. Ask the loveliness of the wide, airy spaces. Ask the loveliness of the sky. Ask the order of the stars. Ask the sun making the day light with its beams. Ask the moon tempering the darkness of the night that follows. Ask the living things which move in the waters, which tarry on the land, which fly in the air. 
Ask the souls that are hidden, the bodies that are perceptive, the visible things which must be governed, the invisible things which do the governing. Ask all these things, and they will answer thee, Lo, see, we are lovely. Their loveliness is their confession. And these lovely but mutable things, who has made them save beauty immutable? Who could make such beauty except for a beauty that's immutable, that's far surpassing in beauty? Okay, we'll talk eventually about the law of cause and effect. And if anything is found in this world to be beautiful, it has to have a source that exceeds it in beauty because the cause has to be greater than the effect. So if you look at the Grand Canyon and you marvel, you look at the ocean and you marvel, if you look at the stars and you marvel, those are effects that have been created. The, the creator of that effect has to surpass them in beauty. It's impossible for that effect to be greater than its cause. So who can make these beautiful, lovely things except for beauty immutable? Uh, I want you to consider Isaiah chapter 40 for just a moment as we talk about the stars. Because... It's one thing to consider the beauty of the heavens and consider the glory of God through that beauty. It's another thing to realize that it's ministering to you. That the stars and the beauty of the universe are serving pastorally for you. If you look at Isaiah 40, starting in verse 25, actually, God says this, To whom then will you liken me? Who are you comparing me to? He said, To whom... Shall I be equal, says the Holy One. He says, lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things, who brings out their host by number. He's pointing you to the heavens to look at the starry sky. It's very difficult in South Florida with our light pollution, correct? You ever been somewhere where you really get some pitch black nights and you look up in the sky? It's a far different scene, isn't it? And God's saying, look up in the heavens and ask who... Consider who you're comparing me to. Because I call out their host by number. <laughs> it says he calls them all by name. He calls them all by name. So our telescopes have found 100 billion galaxies. Just in what we've been able to see, we found 100 billion galaxies. Each galaxy averaging about 10 billion stars per galaxy. That's 100 billion trillion stars that we've seen. And God says, I know all their names. Now listen, I'm a teacher. Do you know how long it takes to get to know 25 names? Yeah. It takes a long time. And even after, and then when they're gone for a summer and they come back, you're like, hey, man, what's up? Right? Okay. God knows 100 billion trillion stars by name. And it says, by the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. He doesn't go, where's Orion, right? Where'd he go, right? He calls them all by name. Now, when you read the Genesis account, it's going to say this. He made two lights to govern the sky, the sun to govern the day and the moon to govern the night. And then of these billions and trillions of stars that are massively larger than our earth, some of these stars are so dense that a quarter inch of that star, if it hit the earth, it would penetrate and come out the other side. So dense these stars can get unbelievable size where we would look like a pencil dot next to it. And the Bible says this, and he made the stars also. 
What did you do today that you go, oh, I did that also, yeah, I did that also. Well, that was God making these stars. Okay, he, he did that too. And now one of them is missing. Now what's pastoral about that? Well, God immediately says, after he has you consider the stars, he says, so why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, and say, my way is hidden from the Lord and my just claim is passed over by my God? He says, why do you think you're forgotten by God? He says, go out in the stars and see what you see and know that I call all of them by name. I call them out by number. I know their names and not one of them's missing. So if I treat the stars that have no soul that way, why do you think I don't know what's going on in your life? You're far more valuable, far more important. Of course I know what's going on in your life. Of course I'm caring for you. No matter what you're going, whatever you're going through, whatever you have gone through, God is caring for you through that. And sometimes, oftentimes, he says trust. Trust is a part of the relationship, isn't it? If you're married, you know how important trust is, don't you? Well, Jesus is our bridegroom. Sometimes he says trust. Trust me. Okay? We're, we're not, we don't have the capacity in our brains to have all the answers. So sometimes we just have to trust. Now, Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas is regarded as one of the great geniuses of human history. And I love when I bring him up at school because they're like, oh, I thought that was just a high school. It's like, no, they don't name high schools after nothing. There's a real Thomas Aquinas. Now, Thomas Aquinas gives five ways through science to know that God exists. Okay, and they're very creative, creatively called Thomas Aquinas' five ways. So the first argument that he gives is called the argument from motion. That's the fact that things are in motion. Okay, the universe is in motion, isn't it? Okay, so why is a day 24 hours? Why do we say a day, okay, we're going to make day a 24-hour period. Why do we say that? Because that's how long it takes the earth to spin once, correct? Why do we say a month is a month? We're, what, we're tracking the moon around the earth, correct? Why is a year a year? Tracking the earth around the sun, correct? Okay, but why is a week a week? What's going on in space that makes a seven-day week? And the answer is absolutely nothing's going on in space. The whole world goes by a seven-day week simply because our Bible says that that's how creation happened. Did you see the credibility that comes with the Bible that way? Okay. So... Because all of this is in motion, and it actually is so predictable in motion that we set our clocks by it, we set our calendars by the motion that's out there, Thomas Aquinas argued this. He says, nothing moves unless it's acted upon by another. So things just don't start moving for no reason. It has to be acted on in some way by another. Things like the universe are in motion. Therefore, something or someone must have acted upon it. And it cannot be an infinite set or an infinite regress of things since then there would be no first mover in the series and therefore no series at all. Let me unpack that a little bit. So Thomas Aquinas is saying because something has to act on something to move it. The universe is moving, so something had to act upon it. So what is acting upon the universe to set it into motion? Well, it will be argued that what, if you don't believe in God, that whatever that thing is, that would have to be something in motion to move, to set this universe in motion. Then the question is, well, what set that in motion, correct? And then when you get that answer, what are you going to ask? 
What's at that emotion? And when does that end? That's called an infinite regress. You're regressing back into infinity because you can forever and ever keep saying, what's at that emotion? What's at that emotion? What's at that emotion? And he says, if you're doing that, then there's not going to be any first mover. Because what would be first? That thing would have to be set in motion by something else. So there'll be no first mover if you're in an infinite regress. If there's no first mover, then there's no second mover or third. or Then you have no set at all, correct? So you can't have any motion. So that theory defeats itself, doesn't it? You cannot have an infinite set of movers. Something has to be first. You follow that okay? Something has to be first. And Thomas Aquinas likes to finish his arguments by saying things like this. That first mover we call God. Okay, because we don't have any evidence of any other first mover. And we have tons of evidence for God. So he says, the fact that things are in motion declare that God must exist. That's his first argument, his argument from motion. And I can take questions at the end, so don't raise your hand like now and go, what the heck did you just say? Um, we can just write them down, okay? And, and email Mike or something. All right. Just kidding, don't email Mike. All right, efficient causality is the second argument. In the efficient causality argument, Thomas Aquinas says this. Am I on the right slide? All right, good. He says, this is an argument about infinite regress. We just learned about that, correct? So now if the cause is removed, so too is the effect removed. You can't have a cause without an effect. So if you take the cause away, there'll be no effects. And if there's no first cause, then there are no intermediate causes and ultimately no final effect. So Thomas Aquinas says we call this cause God. So he's the first mover. We call him the first unmoved mover because people will say, well, God's in motion, so who put God in motion? Well, now you're in the infinite regress again, correct? Something has to be first, okay? And now with the cause and effect, the efficient causality, the argument says in this line of causes and effect, there has to be a first cause. There has to be a first mover, and there has to be a first cause. His third argument is called possibility and necessity. He says, we observe that things have both possibility of existence and the possibility of non-existence. Now, things that are capable of non-existence must have at some point not existed. Okay? So things that are that are that are capable of non-existence must have at some point not existed. Why? Because if at some point they did not exist, that means they've always existed, correct? That means something's eternal, correct? And we have scientific proof now that the universe is not eternal. So we're going to talk about that tonight even, okay? So now, if something's capable of non-existence, at some point that very thing did not exist, which means at some point in time, nothing would have been. So in other words, if things that are capable of non-existence at some point must have not existed, at that point of its non-existence, nothing would have existed. And if at any time nothing exists, then it's necessary that forever nothing will exist. Let me say it this way. If, at any, if, if in five seconds the universe is going to blink off and there's going to be absolutely nothing in our universe, positively nothing, then it follows necessarily that there will always continue to be nothing. Because how do you get something out of nothing? There's no scientific mechanism to allow something to come out of nothingness. 
Okay, we good? Something cannot come out of nothing. So if the universe blinks off and becomes absolute nothingness for even a millisecond, it must always remain absolutely nothing forever because nothing can come out of that nothingness. Okay? <laughs> There's a, a Latin saying, ex nihilo nihil fit. It's right here on the slide, actually. Ex nihilo nihil fit, which means out of nothing, nothing can come. Out of nothing, nothing comes. Is there something in our universe? I'm talking to a lot of those somethings right now, right? There is something in our universe, so you could not have come out of nothing. You had to come from something, okay? So, and we're going to talk about this when we get to the cosmological argument, what that something has to be. So this necessary being we call God. So because things are in motion, there has to be a first mover. Because of the laws of cause and effect, there has to be a first cause, and because of the possibility of things not existing, therefore they must at some time not have existed. And if there was ever a time where nothing existed, then nothing would ever come. Yet here we are. So there has to be something that always existed. What is that thing? Okay. And this isn't even getting to that that thing that always exists has to have the power to create. Because here we are, correct? It has to be something with creative power. And we would say because of the complexity of our DNA, of all the metaphysics that go into understanding the universe, because of all the complex nature of things, whatever that creator thing is must be highly intelligent. Okay? Highly intelligent. And the, to have the ability to create, it must be entirely powerful as well. <coughs> all right. Fourth of his five ways are called degrees of perfection. So he argues this. If anytime we say that something is better or more beautiful or we give these degrees of perfection, okay, if something's more, if a, this painting is more beautiful than that painting, what is the standard that the more beautiful painting is approaching more nearly than the less beautiful painting? There has to be a standard of beauty that it's approaching closer. Otherwise, you wouldn't know what's more beautiful. So what is that perfect standard of beauty that a more beautiful painting is approaching more nearly than the other painting. There has to be a standard of perfect beauty. It goes with any degree of perfection that we talk about. Mother Teresa is more moral than Adolf Hitler. Says who? What's your standard? Okay. There has to be a perfect standard of morality that Mother Teresa more nearly approached than Adolf Hitler did. Otherwise, you can't compare them. There's got to be a standard. Okay, so what is that standard of perfect morality? What is the standard of perfect beauty? What is the standards of perfection that we allow us to compare things to? That standard, the supreme being, we call God. He's got to be perfect in beauty, perfect in morality. He's got to be what we call a maximally great being. Because if there was a being greater than him, guess what we would call that being? God. Right? Okay, because by definition, God is maximally great. So Thomas Aquinas, in his book, Met, uh, Second Metaphysics, he said, whatever is supreme in any line of perfection is the cause of all degrees within that line of perfection. So whatever is supreme in any line of perfection is the cause of all the other lesser degrees of perfection. Okay? All right, fifth way, Thomas Aquinas argued. 
by the order which governs nature. And here he says this, we see that the things which lack the power of knowledge, like our natural bodies, like my arm has no knowledge, correct? My leg has no knowledge. So we see that the things which lack the power of knowledge, like our natural bodies, they still act towards purposes. My arm is designed for a purpose, right? My feet are designed for a purpose. They have a design that fulfills purposes. They always or most often operate in a way to achieve the best results. Best results are not achieved through chance but through intention. So how did our non-knowledgeable um, body parts become designed towards purpose? How did that happen? Did anybody ever make a chainsaw by accident? They go, I was just messing around and this chainsaw came out, right? No, it's by design and intention because that chainsaw has no knowledge. It doesn't know how to achieve an end by itself. It doesn't know how to create purpose in itself by itself. It needs intelligence to act upon it, correct? Well, what about our bodies? What about our bodies? What acted upon our bodies that made it designed? See, people that believe in evolution have a huge, huge problem answering this. We cannot have life unless our circulatory system comes into existence all at the same time. Evolution will not allow for a heart to be around and wait for arteries and blood vessels to evolve later, right? It's all got to come together or wait for you to form blood with all its properties that are necessary. It's got to be there when the capillary is there, when the, when the heart is there. All of this has to come into existence at the same time or none of it works. There's no life ever. We can't wait for these things just to come about individually, can we? So it requires massive amounts of intelligence, massive amounts of engineering, massive amounts of power to create the material that makes a heart. Where did that come from? Where did your skin come from? Where did your eyebrow hair come from? Where did all this thing come from? How does your body know to make the heart the right size to fit in a certain place? And why does it always put it in the same place every time? Why does this happen so in such a designed way if there was no intelligence behind it? Okay, this stuff cannot happen by chance. If I had a box filled with red, white, and blue confetti, what are the chances that I tip that box over and the confetti flutters to the floor and forms the American flag? You wouldn't wait around long enough for me to keep tipping it to see, would you? It ain't never going to happen not an English teacher, okay? It ain't never going to happen. Now, evolution will say this. Well, you need time. Give the confetti more time. So let's bring the confetti up on the Goodyear blimp and drop it from there. It'll have a lot more time. But did the chances get better or worse that it'll form an American flag? Worse. They try to argue time plus chance leads to all these possibilities of design. When we, our observations tell us time plus chance leads to more chaos, not to more order. You give chaos more time, you get more chaos, right? It's just our observations. All right. So he finishes his argument by saying, whatever lacks the power of knowledge cannot tend to an end unless it is directed by a being with knowledge and intelligence. The arrow must be directed by the archer. It just makes sense, correct? The arrow must be directed by the archer. 
Therefore, there is an intelligent being by which all natural things are directed toward their purpose, this being we call God. So those five arguments are saying there are no other reasonable arguments for these realities except for there being a being called God. Now we talk about the archer has to direct the arrow. I find it hysterical that, especially when we look at our own DNA and we find how massively complex everything is within us. And yet when an archaeologist digs around a site and they find an arrowhead, they'll look at that arrowhead and they'll say, this was made by intelligence. You don't get this design of an arrowhead without intelligence. This will not come by wind, rain, and erosion. This was a sign of intelligence. Yet they look at our bodies and they go, that was a freak accident. But the arrowhead, that required design, right? It's absolutely absurd. All right. Genesis 1, let's see how God worked through creation to even give us our gospel. All right. Genesis 1.1. Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning. All right, let's stop there. Okay. This is why our verse-by-verse studies take six months to get through. All right. In the beginning. Now, if you have a beginning, that implies you have an end. Right? Now, before the turn of the 20th century, the early, early 1900s, Albert Einstein with his theory of general relativity. Edwin Hubble with his telescope. All these scientists were coming up with their life's great works around the same decade or two to show that the universe actually had a beginning. Now this changed everything in the scientific community because they believed that the universe was eternal. They called it the uh, static state theory, that the, the universe just in the static state of eternal existence. Well, Einstein helped prove that, no, it actually had a beginning point. All time, space, and matter came into existence at a point in time. What does that imply? If it came into existence at a point in time, what was there before that point in time? Nothing. What did you learn about nothing already tonight? You can't ever get anything out of nothing. Okay, you can get absolutely nothing out of nothing. So now we know that there was nothingness at some point, And now there's not nothingness. So that begs the question, how did something come to be out of nothing? There's no scientific me mechanism that can do that. So when they thought the universe was eternal, they thought time just moved in this great circle, just very cyclical. Okay? They would, they would refer to the four seasons. There's summer and then there's fall and then there's winter and then there's spring then there's summer it's not hard right summer and then fall and then winter and then spring and everything's just going in meaningless endless circle and as Solomon examines everything under the sun that's what he's seeing and he says it's all vain it's all vanity it's all chasing after the wind it's meaningless that's the preacher right he says what was done before whatever's going to be done in the future has already been done before it's all meaningless and the great cry of Solomon's heart as he's looking under the sun, remember he's not considering God through that. As he looks under the sun, his cry of his heart is there's nothing new under the sun, correct? What does Jesus Christ come along and say? Behold, I make all things new, right? He's the answer to Solomon's frustration. 
Now, once we learned that the universe had a beginning, beginnings imply ends. To get to an end, you can't be in a cycle. You, your time, we know now, is linear. It actually has a beginning point, and it's going to have an ending point. And we are on a journey from between that beginning and that end. Today is a day moving us along that timeline, correct? Towards that end, which means today has meaning and purpose. Today's a day advancing you towards an end point. Now that end point, our Bible tells us, that God draws an arrow at the end of that end point, saying that this line goes on forever, correct? This line goes on, not even your death can stop your movement of time, your personal movement of time. You will keep advancing in time after death, correct? Okay, so this brings hope. Now there's meaning. We're going somewhere. If we're going somewhere, that means we have a destiny. Okay? And when, when you're taking a step closer to your destiny, there's meaning and purpose, which is why the Bible tells us how we ought to live in light of these things. Correct? It's telling us how we ought to live in light of that destiny. All right. So it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Do you like my darkness slide? Okay. All right. And darkness, it's John. All these slides are John. I just had text and nothing else, and then he came up with all this stuff. All right, darkness and deep. Now, life cannot be created nor sustained in these conditions. We can't live in darkness and deep. We need light and land, correct? We need light and land to survive. So God must overcome them both. So what does he do? Well, he creates light and he creates land, correct? Now, the darkness is still a threat to our survival, correct? The deep is still a threat to our survival. So what I want you to see is that we're at the very, very beginning of revealed the revelation of God, right? We're in the first verses of Genesis, and we've encountered darkness, and we've encountered deep, and there's no life at this point. God has to start speaking creation forward to where there's light and there's land so that there can be life. Now, as darkness and deep are still a threat to us, I want you to see in Revelation 21, the very, very end of the Bible, in Revelation 22, the very last chapter of the Bible. So we're scanning the entire revelation of God through Scripture, aren't we? From the very beginning to the very end. It starts in darkness and deep, and here's how the Bible ends. Chapter 21 of Revelation, John says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. There's no more sea. So what does God overcome from Genesis to Revelation? The deep. Okay, it's no longer a threat. Then we get to chapter 22, and it says this. I'll just start in verse 1. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of the street and on either side of the river was the tree of life. The tree of life is there. Remember the tree of life? Genesis 1 and 2? My goodness. The Bible's ending just like it started, isn't it? It's ending just like it started. There's a tree of life. And... Remember the angels put in front of the garden so Adam and Eve could not go back into the garden? And it says specifically, so they will not eat of the tree of life and live forever. 
Because if they eat of that tree of life and live forever as sinners, they're forever separated from God, aren't they? So God's going to work a plan of redemption, and he, so he takes that tree of life away from them. Now we find it in heaven. And guess what God says when we get to heaven? And he points at the tree of life. What does he say? Come and eat freely. Now that we're back with him, he wants us to freely eat of that tree. Now, which bore 12 fruits, each yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. What's been overcome? The darkness. So the deep and the darkness are completely overcome in heaven, right? How does the Bible start? There's darkness and deep. There's no life. It ends. There's no sea and there's no night. And now there's no death. You see that? See how the Bible is just one fluid story? Literally brought you from the very beginning to the very end, and it's talking about the same scenes. It's talking about the same stuff here. All right. Verse 3. See, we're cruising. No, verse 2. I take that back. We're on 2. All right. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light and there was light. Do you know you just got the gospel and the creation story? You just got the gospel. Because see, it starts with darkness, correct? The Bible says that without Christ, you're in what? Darkness, okay? Then it says the spirit was moving over the waters. And for you to receive the gospel, the Spirit has to move in you first, correct? It's our New Testament revelation. What's the third thing that happened in creation? God spoke. Romans 10 tells us faith comes by hearing the word. The word is spoken. And what happened when God spoke in Genesis? Light appeared. What happens when we're in darkness, but the Spirit moves in us, then the word is spoken to us, we become the light of the world, correct? Now, Paul recognizes those four steps from creation to salvation. That as God's creating in the way that he's creating, he has our salvation already in mind. So he does it this way. So Paul will say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the first six verses, he says this, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we don't lose heart, but we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded. If you're blinded, you're in what? Who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel, so they're the blind now, they're not getting the light, of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves as your bondservant for Jesus' sake. Now listen to verse 6. For it is the God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness. Clear reference to Genesis 1, correct? It's the same God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying the same way that he created is the same way that he saves. Those four steps of creation 
become your four steps of salvation. God had you on his mind in the beginning. Isn't that phenomenal? So the Apostle Paul sees that, and guess what he calls you? He calls you a certain name because you are the finished product of creation. As creation has those four steps, you had those four steps. So Paul says you're a new. Why do you think he used that term? There's the old creation. That's how the heavens and the earth came. But God did the same steps in you, and now you're a new creation in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. All right. Now, binary patterns. <coughs> All right, here's where we step, in, step a little bit into the political arena without apology because it's the Bible. So here we go. Now, if we look at the days of creation, I'm going to try to do this from memory instead of reading through it because it's a lot later than I thought it was. If we look through the days of creation, we see these binary patterns. God creates things in pairs. The highlight of the creation days is some sort of pairing. Uh, he begins with, um, there's darkness and deep, but then, then suddenly he, um, on day one, he divides day from the light from the darkness. He divides light from darkness, right? That's a binary pattern. On day two, he separates the waters above from the waters below. There's another binary pattern. On day three, he separates the land from the water. It's a major act of day three. Another binary pattern. Day four, he creates two lights, one to govern the day, one to govern the night, so he creates the sun and the moon. It's another binary pattern. Day five, he creates the creatures of the air and the creatures of the sea. It's another binary pattern. And what are all of those patterns called after they're completed? Good. And that's not God going, look how good I am at this. Good there is a moral term. It's a term of morality. It says I'm making everything moral and upright, which is why the sin of Adam is so serious. Because mankind introduced sin into a perfectly moral universe. So he's declaring it good, 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 good. But day six gets a very good. What's the binary pattern that completes all these binary patterns that is like the symbol clash of all of creation that gets celebrated the most is what binary pattern gets created on day six. He made them male and female. That speaks into our culture today, doesn't it? It's how God made them. He made them male. And he made them female. And he made male and female for purpose. The purpose was life. Because what's the first command they get? Be fruitful and multiply. This is what instructs our understandings. Okay? The word of God. I know TikTok is a great competitor of the word of God now, telling us all sorts of other ideas about this. But the people are like the, the, the grass of the field that fades and the flower that fades, right? But the word of God stands forever. It's where our wisdom is. It's where our knowledge and our understanding is. And God is creating in a pattern. You have binary pattern after binary pattern. It's moral and it's good. And the one that's celebrated the most is of course the image bearers 
the male image bearer and the female image bearer of God himself. Now, this, this is a pattern. Creation is written in the form of a pattern. Your observations will tell you if it's a pattern, there is a pattern maker involved. Randomness and chance do not create patterns. Okay? So, um, so we celebrate these binaries. Now, in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus supports this idea of this binary pattern. When asked about divorce and remarriage, he says this. He says, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning, what does he mean by at the beginning? Genesis 1, he who made them at the beginning made them male and female. And then he says this, and for this reason, for the reason that God made a male and God made a female, for that very reason, he said, a man shall leave his father and a mother and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but they are one flesh. So therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. God has design behind all of this. Okay, so, so Jesus says our marriages are supporting this, this idea. Now, where, where was the very first miracle Jesus ever performed? At a wedding. That's how he adorns marriage. He puts his blessing upon marriage that the very first miracle he ever performs is at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And at that wedding of Cana of Galilee, he turns water into wine. And our Savior, who must be pure and he must be perfect, without spot or blemish, right, gets accused of something at that wedding. As he turns the water into the wine, the master of the banquet says you did not follow the wedding custom. Okay? You're supposed to save the bad wine for last, but you gave us the good wine last. You violated the wedding custom. What was Jesus' defense? He had none. Yet he has to be perfect. Violating customs seems to be a mar on your perfection. But Revelation 19, I'm trying to show you how the Bible works. I showed you Genesis 1, Revelation 22, right? Now we have John 2. Let's look at Revelation 19. It simply says this. It's a picture of Jesus on a white horse during judgment time. It says, Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Jesus himself is treading the wine press, creating the wine of the wrath of God. That is the bad wine. And when does it come from Jesus? Last. This is the last wine, isn't it? And it's the bad wine. So did he violate the wedding custom? No. So I'm trying to show you is the Bible is always informing on itself throughout the 66 books. That's why we've got to, see, here's how we learn to read the Bible. Let's memorize a verse, right? Let's go verse by verse all the time and let's memorize some verses. Sometimes you've got to back up from 30,000 feet and take in Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 and go, what is this thing about? And you'll see how much the Bible is informing on itself throughout all these books of the Bible. That's called inspiration. You think these shepherds and fishermen pulled that off without God? The Bible is informing on itself constantly. It was written 1,400 years 
over a 1,400-year period by 40 authors on three continents, and it's without error. If we played the telephone game in here, do you think if I gave him a message, it would come out the same back there? No. There's no inspiration going on. But 40 authors over 1,400 years on three different continents and three different languages without error, without God, if you believe that, you are a greater person of faith than me because I can never believe that. So say your faith is blind and misguided. Okay, God is informing us that he is the author. Okay, that he is the creator. And there's no other ways to rightly see these things. All right. All right, I'm on Genesis 2-7, John. Are you there? Okay. Genesis 2-7. What does that tell us? And the Lord God made man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. You see, we're made from dust, we return to dust, correct? But we're also breath. He breathed into our nostrils the breath of life. In fact, as he breathes on the apostles at the end of John's gospel, he says, receive the spirit to the apostles, and they receive the spirit and they're saved, right? And that was his breath. Same word for spirit, his breath. He said, receive the spirit, and he gave him his breath. That's the breath that was breathed into our nostrils to make man a living being. He gave us his spirit, okay? Now, you see those Hebrew letters down there? Okay, little Hebrew lesson, you ready? Okay, those four letters you read from right to left. So the tiniest letter there, on the right is called the yod. The letter next to it is called the hey. The letter next to it is called the vav. And the last letter is what? Hey. It's the same as the second letter, right? Yod, hey, vav, hey. Those are the letters that spell Yahweh. But there's no vowels there because they're too reverent to put the vowels in because we're not supposed to pronounce God's name. Okay? So we don't know how it's actually pronounced. That's why sometimes you get Yahweh, sometimes you get Jehovah. Okay, depending on the vowels you stick in there. Now, this yod hey vav hey, it's really made up of three different letters, right? Because the hey is used twice. yod hey and vav are the three letters, different letters that spell God's name. In Hebrew, those are called the three breathing letters. Because you, you say them with your breath. yod hey vav Okay, they're the three breathing letters. So the Hebrews had a a saying, which was when a baby comes into the world, why does the doctor spank him? Trying to see his lung capacity, right? Wants to get him breathing, right? And so the, the Hebrews had a saying that you can't begin life until you start saying God's name through these three breathing letters. When you're breathing, says it's a yod heh vav the three breathing letters. And as soon as you stop saying God's name, you take your last breath and you die. But as long as you're alive, you're constantly saying the name of God, okay, through these three breathing letters. Now, the Hebrew letters also are Hebrew numbers, just like in Roman, right? The Roman numbers are their alphabet. Greek and Hebrew are the same way. But Hebrew, not only is, are these letters their letters and these letters are their numbers, they also have word pictures that go with each letter, 
It becomes fascinating study of their words when you look at their word pictures that go with it. Yod, the word picture for Yod is a hand. Hey, they give the word behold as the word picture. To behold something is their hey. And Vav is the word picture is a nail. So Yod, Hey, Vav, Hey basically says, Behold the hand, behold the nail. And there's God's name. Okay, I thought you'd react to that, but you didn't. So, okay. You did. You react to everything. That's why I'm so grateful for you. Yes. So I'm so grateful for you. I saw you at church Sunday. Okay. <laughs> All right. Verse 16. 2.16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. Is there any plan B there? Now, freely eat of any tree you want and live forever. Eat of the one tree, you'll, you'll surely die. Of course you know what happens. They eat of the one tree. And there's no plan B, yet Adam lives hundreds of years after that. And people say, well, he died spiritually, and that may be true, but it sure seems to me he was supposed to die physically, according to the word of God there. But he doesn't. Why not? Because God killed an animal, didn't he? And he covered Adam's nakedness and his shame with that animal skin, correct? So we learn about substitutionary sacrifice as early as Adam, don't we? Okay? Now, my question, though, is this. Adam received this command. Eve's not yet created. So Adam's got to communicate this command to Eve when she gets created. Yet, she gets tempted by the serpent and eats, correct? Now, I don't know. Somebody said amen to that? <laughs> Heard a man's voice go, amen. She did that, yeah. All right. <laughs> now listen. I don't know how long a period of time it was between Eve's bite of the apple, and it's almost certainly not an apple, right? That's from the tree of the knowledge, right? This is a great source of knowledge, isn't it? And look at their logo. You bit the apple, right? But I don't, apples don't grow in that part of the world. And what did Adam and Eve try to cover themselves with? So I, I, I'm betting it was a fig, and this doesn't matter for anything. I'm just thinking out loud as I'm getting distracted by myself. All right, so anyways, I don't know how long a period of time it was between Eve eating the fruit and Adam still being innocent before he ate the fruit. There was a moment in time when Eve had the curse of death on her head and Adam is completely innocent and capable of eternal life on his own. Okay, so my question is what should Eve have done before she ate the fruit? And the answer is what Paul says in Ephesians 5. Respect her husband. He shared something with her. And instead of respecting her husband, she entertained these ideas of the serpent, correct? She didn't respect her husband. What should Adam have done, according to Ephesians 5, that says, love your wives as Christ loved the church and was willing to give up his life for her? While he was still innocent, he was to beg God, that even though he was innocent, his wife had the curse of death on his head, he should have asked God if that curse of death could fall on him so that she could live. Isn't that how Ephesians 5 says you're to love your wives? Right? Okay, men, 
You're literally to love them to death. All right? All right, now, I do a lot of marriage counseling. I'm hoping stuff like that will save me some counseling in the future, maybe. All right. All right, so what was the very first not good of the Bible? It's not good for the man to be alone, correct? So God says, I will make a helper suitable for you. Now, how many of you girls like the, the fact that God just called you a helper for the man? Nobody likes what God says. Yes, you, thank you. I'm so thankful for you. Yes, okay. Let me say one more thing and we'll vote one more time. The only other th time the word helper is used towards somebody is that word helper is used to describe God. So now how many of you women are comfortable that God calls you a helper in Genesis when he calls himself a helper? Wow, what a difference that made. All right. Okay. Now, you would, what do you think the next verse should be when he says, it's not good that you're alone, I'll make a helper suitable for you? It should be the creation of Eve, right? But it's not. What is it? It's the creation, it's the naming of the animals, right? So the animals are brought to Adam, I think, in pairs, because God did that later on that way, correct? And plus, sometimes the male animal has a different name than the female animal, correct? Like what animals are different, male to female? Lion, lioness, that's pretty close, though, Armando, right? What? Buck and a doe. Okay, let me tell you what throws my kids. Let me see if it throws the adults. Um, a goose and a... Teenagers don't know that. I say a goose and a... And they go, geese. No, it's not a goose and a geese. It's a goose and a gander, all right? <laughs> These your kids, largely, I think, so... All right, now... <laughs> the first not good of the Bible is the man's loneliness. It's not good. He'll make a helper suitable for him. And after naming the animals, he creates Eve. Now, how does the way in which God created Eve point us to Jesus? Where's the gospel in the creation of Eve? Well, is this a fair summary of her creation? God puts Adam into a deep sleep. John keeps saying this looks like Jesus meets the Flintstones, right? Okay. It's literally hard to find like a naked woman on the internet that's acceptable for a class like this. So that's what you get right there. All right. Now, God puts Adam into a deep sleep. And while in that deep sleep, even though Adam's totally innocent, has never sinned, his side is wounded. Wounding is supposed to be a sign of sin, right? But God wounds him to the point where he has to put his flesh back together. He has to close up the hole with his flesh again. And what he takes from the man's side, he uses to form a bride. And I think he uses the perfect bone, right? It's a bone from his side. So the man and the woman are to beware with each other. Side by side, not one in front of the other. It's a bone that's protecting the heart. It's a bone that's closest to the heart where she belongs for the rest of their lives together, right? Is the woman closest to his heart. It's not a bone from the hand that he would rule over her, a bone from the foot that he'd walk all over her. It's literally the perfect bone. And from that bone, he creates Eve. Then he wakes Adam up in a garden to behold and enjoy his new bride. Is that a fair summary? Well, John the Baptist points at Jesus and says, he's the bridegroom. I'm just the friend of the bridegroom. 
So if Jesus is the bridegroom, who's his bride? The church, you and me, right? The bride of Christ. And guys don't have to be uncomfortable with being a bride. This is spiritual, not physical, correct? In Christ, there is no male and female, Paul says, correct? We're spiritually married to Jesus Christ. Now, how does, G how does God give Jesus a bride? Well, he'll put Jesus into a deep sleep of death on the cross, where even though he's innocent and has never sinned, his side is wounded by a Roman spear. And we're told what comes out of his side is blood and water. And Paul unpacks that and says the blood purchases the bride and the water cleanses her of all of her impurities. In other words, a bride is being formed from the blood and the water that comes from his side. And then Jesus is woken up in a garden. Remember, he was buried in a garden tomb. Mary thought he was the gardener. So he's woken up in a garden to behold and enjoy his new bride forever and ever. What happened in Genesis 2 God had your salvation in mind, didn't he? Okay? This harmony is unexplainable apart from inspiration. I, I, I can't be convinced that this is just from man when these stories are thousands of years, of, uh, hundreds and hundreds of years apart. Now, what's the first word that comes out of the risen Christ's mouth? Woman, why are you weeping? What did Adam said she shall be called? Woman. So he uses the Adam word, first word out of his mouth, woman, why are you weeping? And where are they standing? In a garden. So what is the resurrection of Christ all about? He's bringing us back to paradise. He's bringing us back to the garden through his finished work, his atoning death, his sacrifice and his resurrection. He's reintroducing paradise to us. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. All right, so we're going to finish with this. Genesis 2.24 says that Adam says, It's now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. What does this mean to be one flesh? Well, I just want to share this tonight then with you is this. A miracle happens when... The pattern established in Genesis about a man leaving his home, a woman leaving her father and mother, and the two coming together in marriage to become one flesh. Now, when do they actually become one flesh? Is it during the wedding ceremony when they're pronounced husband and wife? No. It's when they consummate the marriage that night. Because Paul will say, don't you know that if you join yourself to a prostitute, you are one with that prostitute. Okay. In other words, we are one with whomever we sleep with. God is joining people together which meet through sex, which means sex is very sacred and it's very holy. And it's a little sad that it needs to be said. Isn't that true? With the pornography, the immodesty, the um, fornication, all of the stuff that's going on. We have trashed the gift that God has given us. Can you possibly imagine what kind of person you must be if you're at your best friend's wedding and she says to you, 
Can you take all of these wedding gifts that have been given to us and put them in your car and drive them to the reception so we can have them there? So you put them all in your car and instead you drive to the pawn shop and you sell them all. Okay? That's what premarital sex is. It's taking a wedding gift that God has given and spending it on somebody who didn't promise you anything. Then there's no promises made or anything because God's design is that children would come. A sign of God's good pleasure is that it's life-giving. A man and a woman are life-giving in their marriages. And when we use that gift just for our own selfish pleasures, we're literally taking the gift of God for ourselves with no commitment or promises. Because the life that comes from a man and a woman deserves to have the love of that man and the love of that woman as their parents. It's God's design. They deserve to have that mom and the dad in their life. And if that man and woman are promising each other that we will stay together for the rest of our lives, no matter what happens, then it's breaking this design apart, isn't it? Okay? Families are the center structure of godly societies. And we've got to regain them. We've got to start gaining that ground back. Okay? So no matter what age or stage of life you're in, you're either going to participate in those marriages and make those promises, or you're going to teach the younger generation what marriage really is about. But the, if we're going to talk about design demands a designer, there has to be a God because of motion and design and complexity and all the stuff we're going to talk about, then that God has spoken to us. That's what this is. And if he's spoken to us, we dare not disagree with him. Isn't that true? How dare anybody say that they disagree with God? You have to be an unbeliever to say such arrogance. You cannot possibly claim you know God and then disagree with what he says here. Okay, Submission is a hard word for an American to hear. But without submission, there really is no Christian walk. So as we learn through the, these presentations over the next 10 more weeks, my prayer is that it creates increased submission in all of us to the word of God. Because the rest of the world is watching. And as it's been well said, there's really five Gospels, not four. There's Matthew, there's Mark, there's Luke, there's John, and there's the believer. And most people read the believer to decide if they'll ever read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. So you matter in a huge way. Amen? Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, Lord, we come to you and we just ask that you sanctify the words that were spoken here tonight, Lord, because I'm not trying to get my opinions across, Lord. I'm trying to represent you. Because I know, Lord, that if your word is shared properly, it's life-giving. So I pray that life would come, spiritual life would come. It would become more healthy, more vibrant. Lord, that it would be much more of a light in a dark world. And Lord, may our hearts increase in thankfulness to you, our King, our Lord, our God. So Lord, as we leave here tonight, we pray that we would show one another love for each other as you've commanded us, and that we would show you tremendous love, Lord, as you commanded us, because you are worthy of our entire lives being a living sacrifice to you. I thank you for my brothers and sisters in Christ that it's your salvation that's united us here tonight, both online and in this sanctuary tonight, Lord. So everything we have and are 
we owe it all to you and we thank you for this participation in your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.